Well, good evening, everybody. It is good to see you. If you don't have a handout, uh, there are two handouts that are on the back table back there. Um, there's a kind of just a notes page, and then I've got some confessions and creeds from the history of the church that we'll look at briefly that I think will be uh, helpful to you to have. And so if you don't have one, anybody need one? J.D. Davis will get you one. Keep, get you, grab about five or so of each, J.D., and bring them down front to a couple folks that need them. All right, as you are uh, getting your notes, uh, one quick announcement. Um, we have a VBS, Vacation Bible School, coming up in July, in uh, the July 11th through the 15th. That's a Monday through a Friday from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. We're really excited about it. It's the first time we've done a few kind of kids camp things here um, with an outside ministry that has come helped us the last few years. This year we're going to do a VBS on our own, um, and we're really excited about that. And uh, Robert and Will and Holly Farmer are helping to put that team together. One thing that they wanted me to let you know is that we are in need of kid keepers to help care for the children of the people that are going to be working in the camp. Uh, I mean, working in VBS. And so uh, we, I think there's a lot of young adults here. So if you're not actually serving in VBS, we'd love for you to help uh, serve as a kid keeper to help watch the children of the people actually doing the VBS. Is that, Will, is there anything, as Will here, is there anything else that I would, you would add? I came out the last half, but the last half really good. <laughs> good. So if, um, if you, and they get paid. Yeah, how much do they get paid? Ten bucks an hour or something like that? That's a pretty good chunk of change. Yeah, that's, that's what we call wham. That's walk-around money in my world right there. 30, yeah, 30 bucks right there for one day. A little, little walk-around money in a pocket never hurt. Um, all right, so please do let uh, somebody know. Let Will know or just um, on Sunday, just email um, uh, Molly. And by the way, um, we're going to announce this this Sunday, but Molly Copley is coming to, has started working at the church, and she is the wife of Logan Copley, and um, she is replacing Nicole, who, uh, Nicole Carey, who is moving to Texas because her husband has been promoted to Sergeant Major, and he's going to the Sergeant Major Academy, and we're going to say goodbye to Nicole this uh, Sunday. We're really sad about that, but really excited about Molly coming on board to be one of our administrative assistants up front. So anyway, we need some help with Kid Keepers. Okay, well, if you have some notes, um, we are starting a six-week uh, teaching on the Holy Spirit. We're going to really just kind of, kind of, just peel back the Bible. We're going to read a lot of scriptures over the next six weeks, and we're going to spend this six weeks thinking about the third person of the Trinity. And this is. Um, uh, it's going to be a bit challenging because there's just so much to cover. And so I think one of the challenges we're going to have is that we're going to probably leave some stuff out. Uh, obviously, when you're talking about the third person of the Trinity, you can't just handle that in six weeks. But we're going to do as, as best we can to be as comprehensive as we can, especially today. And then we're going to start to narrow it down and look at some areas that I think particularly we might be helped by to think about the role of the Holy Spirit. So before we do that, let me just give you kind of an overview of these next six weeks. So tonight we're going to look at a general overview of the Holy Spirit and where the Holy 
Spirit fits within the Trinity. We're going to even really look at the doctrine of the Trinity. Rather than diving in um, and zeroing in on the Holy Spirit, we want to have a a 30,000-foot sort of view. And we're going to look a little bit at the role of the Holy Spirit. Not, again, comprehensively, but, but generally. Next week, we're going to look at the Spirit's role in salvation. Then week three, Logan Copley is not the Holy Spirit, but, but um, I will be in California um, going to my brother's daughter's wedding, um, so a- actually my niece uh, is a shorter way of saying that. Um, anyway, so we're going to California, and so that Wednesday, the third Wednesday, Logan Copley will be doing a teaching on, we're still working on what it's going to be, but something related to the Holy Spirit, um, a, a teaching, or maybe even a historical view of how the church has looked at the Holy Spirit, but Logan is a young, excellent, gifted teacher, and you don't want to miss that. Then we're going to look at the Spirit and sanctification, and then the last two weeks, we're going to look at um, probably what most people are you know, most interested in or think about when they think about the Holy Spirit, uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what is that? And then the gifts of the Holy Spirit, what, what are they and are they still in operation? And we're going to look at the arguments that Christians make on both sides as to so many Christians think that there are some gifts of the Holy Spirit that have ceased and are not in operation anymore. There are other camps of Christians that think that all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit mentioned in the Bible are still in operation, and they make uh, theological arguments for that or against that. And then there's lots of variation in between. So we're going to really peel that back, really those last two weeks, weeks five and six, and look at those often somewhat controversial and challenging theological issues surrounding the Holy Spirit, weeks five and six. Um, Okay, here's what I want to do. I want to pray now. And then we're going to get into the um, notes and work through them a little bit. And even before, after I pray, before we work through the notes, I'm just going to share a little bit with you about my journey in regards to this particular doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity, and, and, and just to help you kind of understand my personal history and some of my, uh, my burdens as a pastor for a church as we think about uh, this, this issue, this topic, this beautiful person of the Holy Spirit. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Lord, thank you for, for how good you are to us, and that you have given us life and breath and being. And it is by your Holy Spirit that you give us life, you give us physical life, you give us spiritual life, and it's in you that we live and move and have our being. Lord, how how. How wonderful it is to be able to gather together in a comfortable setting, to sit around the table in fellowship, and now to freely open your word and to think about about your Holy Spirit that indwells your people, that that is doing innumerable things, even now, in our minds and our lives, in in this church and in the world. Lord, we we don't want this to be like chemistry class where we, we observe things, equations, and, 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 and mere facts. We want, to, we want this to transform us. We want more of you. We want more of your spirit in our church. We want more of you in our lives. We want to understand the beautiful Godhead in a deeper 
in and more biblical way. And we confess that we have obstacles, just our own slothfulness, um, maybe our own preconceived notions, maybe fear, um, maybe even spiritual pride. We confess that there are many obstacles to us learning and knowing more about you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us with those. We confess them, and we pray that you would scale them back, that you would deconstruct them and remove them, and that you would breathe afresh on us in the course of this study. Lord, we want more of you. We want to we experience more of your joy and more of your power and more of your grace, and we want more of Christ, and we, we want to understand your fatherhood more and We want more of your gifts, and we want your work to be done in and through us. We want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So help us, Lord. We pray that this would not be an academic or even merely a theological exercise, but that we would commune with you tonight and in the coming weeks. Lord, I pray that you'd help us with these things, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I grew up um, in a cultural Christian home in, um, in Southern California and was part of a mainline denomination that was decidedly uninvolved with anything to do with the Holy Spirit. I think they probably had a confession of the Trinity, but it was a mainline denomination that um, has since gone very, very, and at that time was in the process of going very, very liberal um, and I, I really wouldn't even consider that denomination now, which I won't name to be really even biblical or maybe even Christian. Of course, we thought we were, but we weren't. Um, and when I was in high school, my older brother, I have an older brother who's three years older than me, went away to college, and he played football in college in Arizona, and he got hooked up with an FCA group, a, a Fellowship of Christian Athletes um, chapter at his his local university that was ministering to the football players. And the flavor, I guess the chaplain of that particular FCA group was a, like a really radical Pentecostal guy. And he, he greatly influenced my brother. And so my brother was um, just, just really zealous and, and juiced up. And uh, he would come back um, over the summers during his college days and during my high school days and witness to me and and uh, share the gospel with me, and um, I rejected him for uh, uh, many years, for several years, and then finally, uh, late in my senior year of high school, he brought uh, several of his buddies with him, big, huge guys. A couple of them ended up playing in the NFL. They were big guys, and they were all just sort of like radical um, Pentecostals, and they witnessed to me and um, basically told me that I was uh, a sinner and that I needed to trust in Jesus. And there's that verse in Jude where it says, save some by fear. (laughs) I think that one day they had me cornered in my parents' den and they were all just massive guys and much bigger than me. And they they basically, it was kind of like repent or we're going to beat you up type of an evangelism situation. I don't know that I necessarily recommend that, but, uh, but it worked for me. And so my brother, um, during this time, had gotten involved with a Pentecostal church in my hometown. So where I grew up on the Mexican border, it's 95% Mexican. So virtually everybody in my hometown is, is Catholic. And the few Protestant churches that were there 
uh, the one that was kind of vibrant and alive was a Pentecostal Assembly of God church. And so my brother had been going there when he was home and visiting his girlfriend, who's now his wife and my sister-in-law. And uh, he, he and his girlfriend, now my sister-in-law, invited me that, that day that I was being witnessed to. And I think I kind of, by coercion or just fear for my own life, just said, okay, I repent, I believe in Jesus. They took me to a crusade that a Pentecostal church was putting on um, that night. And I think I heard the gospel. Um, it, it's not necessarily how I would present it now. It was kind of a man-centered sort of view of the gospel. But anyway, I think I heard the gospel. I think I repented and believed. And my sister-in-law, my brother had to go back to college. My sister-in-law started taking me for the next three months to this Pentecostal church, this Assembly of God church in my hometown. I think I grew there. I think I heard the gospel. Um, and within the first week of being at this church, I started to hear about the spiritual gifts and the Holy Spirit. That was a major emphasis on, in the life of this local church. And in fact, I remember one time, I mean, I was 18 years old, a senior in high school, getting away, ready to go away to college, and this man, this, I don't know what he was, a leader in the church, at the end of one of the services, told me that I needed to go with him to pray to receive, you know, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and took me to this upper room or whatever in the sanctuary and began to pray and and it was just crazy and weird and they were you know putting their hands all over me and I could smell their breath and everybody's sweating and I'm like man I was basically ready to just do whatever they wanted me to do to get them get me out of this room and um and th- they were well-meaning well-meaning and earnest and sincere people but it started to produce in me um a sense that this is kind of what it's all about and it produced in me um, a, a, a kind of strange fear and fascination with what they were saying were, was kind of the life and the activity of the Holy Spirit. Well, I went away to college and uh, went to the West Point, to the military academy. My first day there, I was getting hazed by an upper-class cadet, and he invited me to a church out in Highland Falls, which is a little city outside the gates of the academy, and the church was a Pentecostal Assembly of God church, and I went there and grew tremendously, but was in this world where um, there was a a huge emphasis on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then I came here to Fort Benning and got involved in a church where, again, there was a huge emphasis on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, And I would say, looking back on that, although there was much earnestness and much sincerity and many, many good intentions in that sort of Pentecostal stream of the church that I was swimming in at that time. Looking back on it now with a little bit more discernment and maturity, I realized that although they were well-intended, it seemed like the focus of virtually every message and every service kind of eventually got to how you needed this thing, gift, whatever, to sort of arrive at Christian maturity. And as I began to sort of read the Bible and I think grow, I then reacted sort of negatively against that. I think that was a wrong interpretation of the Scriptures, and we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. But then what I did, when I began to discover what I think was better theology and a, a, like more of a focus on the gospel and the work of Christ, I reacted maybe, I overreacted negatively against um, some of people in that stream of the church who really wanted to pursue the things of the Spirit. And then I spent a couple years being kind of a 
kind of a grumpy curmudgeon, you know, <laughs> looking down the end of my nose at those wackos who I actually used to be a part of. And it seems to me like a lot of Christians that I encounter are sort of in one of those two camps, either by birth or by experience. They're either kind of over here and everything's about the Holy Spirit and do you have this gift and, you know, do you got the juice card? Or you're over here and, you know, you just think that those people are wackos and you don't want anything to do with them. And I think that uh, the Bible has much more to say to us than rather just sort of being in one camp or the other, sort of the, the holy rollers or the, you know, the frozen chosen or whatever label you want to give it. Um, I think that uh, these people here tend to just kind of float free with the Spirit, and these people tend to just kind of want to be Bible people and just look at, you know, doctrine and all that kind of stuff and go to seminary classes. And I, don't, I want us to not pit the Word of God and doctrine against the Spirit of God because it's the Spirit of God that wrote the Word of God. And um, I, I want us to, in these next couple of weeks, sort of kind of tread into what a healthy view of the Spirit of God and all of the beauty of the third person of the Trinity is. Um, so that's my, that's my goal. Does anybody kind of identify with those sort of those camps? And, you know, maybe a couple of you are like, oh, yeah, that's me or whatever. Um, so I, I, I want you to know that I have like a lot of affection for people in both camps. And one thing that I want to develop, and I think it has developed, praise God, in the culture of Crosspoint is a generosity towards people, certainly in this church, and just other Christians, right? I mean, so now those Pentecostals that I do really have severe disagreements with now, like I love them. You know what I mean? I mean, they're my brothers and sisters in Christ, you know? Um, and then people over here that I, I kind of want to like, come on, get, get more excited, you know? And, and I love them too. And so, uh, you know, let's, let's recognize too that we're all sort of wired a little bit differently, right? Um, and um, we, we just need to have a lot of grace, grace for one another in our different personalities. So, okay, let's look at uh, uh, Roman numeral number one there, the doctrine of the Trinity. And I, um, it's been a while since I've recommended this, but I um, got a, a good bit of this from this wonderfully helpful resource by Wayne Grudem. He's a, a theologian that, uh, a modern day theologian that has been wonderfully influential on me and the rest of the pastors. It's a book called Systematic Theology. Now, there are lots of books called Systematic Theology. Um, this one is written by Wayne Grudem. It is super helpful. You can buy it on Amazon. It's about 40 bucks. It is an excellent investment. It is really just a collection of what the Bible says about virtually every area of doctrine that is, is important in the Christian life. It's a wonderful resource. I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, and, and some of the stuff that we'll go over tonight and in the coming weeks comes from Grudem's Systematic Theology. He defines uh, the, the Trinity, because I, I before we zero in on the Holy Spirit, let's think about God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he defines the Trinity as God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. Now, this is what Christians have historically confessed and believed. Now, we're going to look at in just a moment how this was developed, this doctrine crystallized and formulated in the early decades of the church. And this is what Christians have believed. And I think now this is 
Orthodox historic Christianity, but we're going to hopefully appreciate that this was a challenge for the church to develop. There is no Bible verse that uses the word Trinity or that clearly states it exactly like that. Now, I think the doctrine of the Trinity is utterly clear in the Bible and in particular in the New Testament. So I don't want you to get nervous about the doctrine of the Trinity at all. But let's just confess this, that, let me read it again, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person, you know the word person, we're not talking about human being, we're talking about the the personhood. Each person is fully God, and yet there is one God. So that is a mystery. We're saying that the three is one. They're distinct but yet they are one. That is beyond our ability to fully, fully comprehend. That's why no analogy is really good. So when you're trying to explain the Trinity to your children, just back away from using like, the Trinity is like an egg, and the shell's kind of like Jesus and the White. I mean, just don't. Don't do that because it just will fall apart. It won't really work because there's really no, no sort of physical picture that fully depicts the Trinity in all of its splendor and glory. And let's, let's take a little bit of comfort in the incomprehensibility of the Trinity because I think it testifies to the godness of God, right? So, God is triune. Well, this was fought over and wrestled over in the history of the church. So if you have that other sheet there, the Nicene Creed um, was a a church creed that um, was was written the first time in AD 325 and then revised again in 381. An excellent creed, uh, confessed and recited a lot in, in more liturgical churches along with the Apostles' Creed. In fact, it would be good for us to do this as well. And look at that third paragraph there. The, the creed kind of, it's, 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 being, it's kind of like early theology for the church. It's taking the letters of the Apostles and the Old Testament and collecting all of them together and really systematizing the truth of the Bible. And that's what these creeds were, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And you can see there the first sentence is about God the Father. And then the second sentence, or the second paragraph, is about um, Jesus. And let me just read that, even though we're talking about the Holy Spirit, this is good for you to know. And in one Lord Jesus, well, I'll just start at the beginning. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. So what's, it, what's the issue at hand here is that they're trying, they're trying to enunciate the divinity of Jesus. And there's words in the Bible that speak about Jesus being begotten by God. Well, does that mean that Jesus the Son was begotten or made by God? And the early church fathers said, well, whatever the word begotten means, it doesn't mean that Jesus was made. He's eternally preexistent. So they're wanting to clarify that Jesus has always been um, God, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried 
And on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sit, sits on the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. And this is one of the first times that the church in a, in a, in a universal way systematized the divinity of the Holy Spirit. The Lord, they're calling the Holy Spirit the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And don't get nervous. Don't break out in hives. We're not Catholic. But we can say that, right? So when, the, when these old creeds use the word Catholic, they're not talking about the Roman Catholic church. The word Catholic means universal. So we're really speaking about the, the universal body of Christ. And one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Apostolic meaning built on the testimony of the, and the doctrine of the apostles. I acknowledge one baptism for, for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Okay, now it is June 22nd, 2016, and most of us grew up at least aware of the doctrine of the Trinity. And it really hasn't been a super controversy in probably any church that you've been a part of. Well, I want us to have an appreciation that people fought for, I mean, people were, people that were wrong, there were heretics and there were, there were major councils and huge discussions and, and serious, serious work to be done that we now, these early theologians, did this incredible work to systematize the Christian faith, develop and enunciate clearly the doctrine of the Trinity, specifically the divinity of Jesus and then the divinity of the Holy Spirit, so that now, in June of 2016, for us Americans, we just like, yeah, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we're standing on the shoulders of people who have battled for truth through the centuries, and I, I think we should appreciate that and give God grace for that, and we should also just realize how God works like slowly through the centuries, like God is patient, like God didn't just whack people over the head, hand them a Bible and say, here's doctrine. Doctrine developed, good doctrine developed slowly over the centuries, over the centuries, and here we are living in a time where we have good doctrine. I, I just think we should, that's, that's, just, that's just another reason for us tonight when we go home and we fall asleep before, and we pray, Lord, thank you that I live in a time when we have such good access to good doctrine that has been fought for through the centuries. I mean, praise God for that, right? But, you know, we, we're in the mode where we'll just, we'll complain because, you know, uh, my kid decided to, record Spongebob instead of pardon the interruption. I had it queued up and they interrupted my recording of the sports show so they could watch their show. <clears throat> and those are the things we get mad about when these people fought for this beautiful truth to be handed down to us, right? Let's just be thankful people as we, as we, as we gaze across the centuries. Then the Athanasian Creed. I won't take that time to read that, but I just gave that to you. That was another uh, fought-out creed that the church... Um, uh, uh, wrestled with, and it speaks about the divinity of the Holy Spirit, how there are three persons. So look at, 
line number 26 there. Um, the whole, but the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. So that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in the Trinity, and the Trinity is unity, is to be worshipped. So the Holy Spirit is not just some sort of unknown force, but the Holy Spirit is one of the persons of the Godhead, three in one, and is God, fully God, and is to be worshipped. Okay, flip the page, that same page with all the creeds, and you see then, moving ahead about uh, 1,200 years to the Westminster Confession of Faith, written in the 1600s on uh, the Holy Trinity. Um, and this Westminster Confession of Faith is used by many Presbyterian churches. Adaptations of this Westminster Confession of Faith became the London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is what we would hold to primarily here in sort of the Baptist stream. But you see there uh, this wonderful expression of the, the divinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So just there in paragraph 3, in the unity of the Godhead, there be, three, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit, eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. And then I wrote for you there, just cross points, Church's Confession of Faith, what we believe is just a compilation of everything that we've just read about the Trinity, and then um, our shorter statement about just the nature or the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit, which we'll get to in a second. So just a little while ago, I said that it's, I think it's unwise to look at sort of analogies of the Holy Spirit, but one thing that has sort of been helpful in the centuries, it's certainly not perfect, but one thing that's just helpful for people to see, and even this little illustration that I'm about to draw has its drawbacks, but it's been helpful in the history of the church. It's called the shield of the Trinity. Okay, so you have, in the middle, you have this right God, and then here we have two circles, and this is the Father, and this is the Son, and this is the Holy Spirit. And we're going to connect them all here. They're all one. Okay. And so the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son, and the Father is not the Son. Now, again, that's not like groundbreaking or anything. We know that, but it's just a picture to show us. And what I don't like about this shield, this illustration, is it almost gives the impression that there's God in the middle and then these three. Just, again, every representation of the Trinity has its limitations. But it's just to remind us that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God but in a mysterious way that we cannot fully understand. They are one, but yet they are distinct from one another. And we're going to look at in just a moment here some errors of, uh, in the history of the church that have gotten these things wrong and really have undercut the truth of the Scriptures. Um, so let me pause there. Any questions or comments or clarifications or anything? Anybody have any? any? Yes, A.J.? 
Define what? Define begot. Okay, yeah. Define begot or begat. Kind of a King James um, way of, of saying. Um, so like in John 3.16, a more king. Does anybody have a King James version uh, the, the, that would say um, that for God so loved the world? It, say that louder. Whosoever believed in him it, perish. Yeah. Is the word begat in there? His only begotten son. So John 3.16. And then in Colossians, um, in, um, where is Colossians? Um, there is, is not in the ESV version of, um, okay. So in verse 18 of Colossians 1, um, this word that is often translated begotten in older versions of the Bible, Colossians 1, verse 18. I don't know if you can put that up there. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So it's speaking about Jesus, right? And it's saying that he is the firstborn from the dead. And that same word is often translated begotten, in John 3.16 and a few other places. And that has caused much um, consternation um, through the centuries. What does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus has been like made or brought about by God the Father? If that's the case, then that undermines the divinity of Jesus because there was a time when Jesus didn't exist. He's not eternal, like the Father, right? And so you have, you don't have an eternally pre-existent triune God. You have a Father who made the Son and then, you know, maybe made the Spirit as well. So what does that word in the original language mean? And it's translated in older versions of the Bible as begat. And we would say that kind of like a father begat a son, but that's not the sense of that word, especially here in Colossians 1.18. When it says that he, meaning Jesus, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, I think it's speaking about, um, first of all, that's speaking about Jesus' resurrection. Um, and I think it's speaking about Jesus' rights and privileges as uh, the, the one new man. And so many people have wrongly interpreted begat to speak about um, the temporal existence of Jesus as if he was made when that begatting speaks to the sonship of Jesus in his rights and roles and privileges within the Trinity, not to his origin. Does that make sense? And so that's where just that word begatting has really caused a lot of confusion. And we're going to talk about it in a second. That is one of the great heirs of a few prominent cults, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the... Um, the Mormons, because they, one of the things they do is wrongly misinterpret those, those uh, verses about Jesus and think that he has been made and therefore they chip away at his divinity and they thereby lose the gospel and that's what makes them a cult. So when, you, when we say begat, we're not talking about the temporal existence of Jesus. We're talking about the role of Jesus in the Trinity as the Son. Does that make sense? Yeah, good question. Okay. All right. So then... Um, 
then that we just talked about the historic confessions of the church, and now you can see a few errors. Some people have thought uh, modalism, that they would say, no, that, that there's just one, one God, and at times he appears in the mode of the Father, and at other times, like during the incarnation, he appears as the mode of the Son, and at other times he appears in the mode, but they're not distinct. That falls apart, really, just even with one verse in Matthew chapter 3 or 4, in Jesus' baptism, where you see the Son incarnate, having the Spirit descend like a dove upon him, and the Father in heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So that just kind of shatters that, uh, that air. But people have believed that. By the way, T.D. Jakes comes from a, a, a oneness Pentecostalism, which is, is, is a form of modalism, and it is a false view of the gospel. He is a false teacher. T.D. Jakes is a false teacher, not just because of his modalism and his faulty views of the Trinity, but because of all his prosperity garbage. But I, don't, don't listen to him. He is a false teacher. Arianism is another, uh, and really Arianism is, uh, uh, back in the uh, 300s, uh, denied the full deity of the Son and the Holy Spirit because of the very thing that A.J. brought up, confusion over some of these verses that speak about the, the begottenness of Jesus. And we still see Arianism exist today in the form of Jehovah's Witnesses and um, Mormonism. I don't have time to talk about those errors and why they really make, uh, they, they, they preach a false gospel. But when you lose the, defini- the divinity of Jesus... Uh, you lose the gospel because Jesus is not able to save if he's merely just a human. Okay, so all of that gets us to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So just a few thoughts as we kind of look at this broad overview of, of the Holy Spirit. And I want to arm you with some texts. We could certainly spend, read a lot of verses in the Bible that would speak to each of these issues, but I just want to arm you with a few so that you get a broader comprehensive view of who the Holy Spirit is um, rather than just zeroing in on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which we'll, we'll get to in, in due time. First is the Holy Spirit is fully God. So Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, Jesus says at the Great Commission, uh, right before his ascension, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now that verse doesn't say that the Holy Spirit is God, but Jesus is putting that triune formula together and really attributing is really putting really I think that one of the first formulations of the doctrine of the Trinity there is by Jesus in the Great Commission so he's he's putting the godness of the Trinity together then in Acts chapter 5 verses 3 and 4 one of the scarier scenes in the New Testament church When the New Testament was forming, Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan, remember this man and his wife lied about um, their giving, right? (laughs) Thank God he doesn't act like this anymore. This was like a one-time thing in redemptive history. Praise God, otherwise we'd all be smoked. (laughs) But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your own, at your disposal? Now listen to this. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Just that one verse there, I think, is sufficient to establish the divinity, the godness, the full godness of the Holy Spirit. I mean, he's saying when you lie to the Holy Spirit, Ananias... Um, you have lied to God. Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. 
You can put that up there, Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So again, we're seeing these triune formulations. Another triune formulation is in 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Uh, and it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So again, here's a verse where we see that the triune God is presented, the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together. And then finally, again, at the very end of the Bible, right before Revelation, Jude verses 21 and 20, but you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Again, none of these verses, maybe with the exception of Acts 5, directly state that the Holy Spirit is God, but you see God in his triune nature being grouped together in these triune formulations. And really, if the Bible didn't even have those, I think Acts 5, Peter's confession, is sufficient. You have not lied to men, but to God when you lied to the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we can, I think, accept that the Holy Spirit is God, but then another problem that we have, especially as Americans who have grown up in the Star Wars age, is that we tend to depersonalize the Holy Spirit as some sort of force, you know, you know, he's like, like an impersonal force of God that is like karma in the universe, you know? And if you are good enough and don't say bad things about your wife's cat, then the force will be with you, right? And we depersonalize the force, the, 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 the Holy Spirit. And let's give ourselves a little bit of grace here because I think the reason why is because it is easy for us to picture the Father because we have fathers, and it's easy for us to picture the Son because we see Jesus incarnate in the flesh, but it's a little bit more difficult to quantify, to picture the Spirit, isn't it? Because we, we live in a, in a physical world, and so as a result, we struggle with understanding the personal nature of the Holy Spirit. But we see in the text that um, he can be grieved. So in Ephesians 4.30, we see this personal nature of the Holy Spirit. And there's many verses like this. Just one. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. He's not just some force of God. Not just the power of God. He's God the Spirit who can be grieved. Who can take great joy in us. And all, all, all sorts of the emotional life of God, if you can use that phrase, um, is attributed to the Spirit. John 16, verses 13 through 15, we see the Holy Spirit in the ministry of Jesus. And we'll read this verse again in just a moment. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you, this personal nature, into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority. He speaks, He communicates. But whoever he he whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. 
He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is Jesus speaking. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I say that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit has this personal mission of communicating the things of Christ to God's people. So he's fully God, but yet he's personal. And let's just confess that we struggle with that, right? And so what do we do with that? Well, let's not overcook it. Let's just resolve to pray, God, I want to experience the fellowship of your spirit in a deeper way. Come and help me understand. If it is more complicated than that, it's just a, come come on, it's a form of Christianity that's for the varsity, but I play on Thursday nights. I'm on the JV, okay? Come on, let's let's not overcomplicate just the accessibility of the Godhead to his people, right? And so it's as simple as saying, God, I want to understand and experience who you are in all your triune nature deeper, better. Pray that prayer. Let's pray that prayer rather than um, just kind of thinking, oh, well, that's difficult to understand. Okay, the role of the Holy Spirit, and we'll conclude with this, and then we'll, we'll I have some time for questions. We could say much more about the role of the Holy Spirit, but again, this is just a broad overview, I think, of some of the major aspects of what the Holy Spirit does. The Spirit assists in carrying out the work of the Father in many ways, a couple primary ways in creation. Genesis 1, verse 2, we see that the earth was out form, without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Okay, so you get this you get this picture that the Spirit of God is active in creation. But yet in other verses we see where the Father creates. And then in Colossians 1 we see where Jesus creates. And so it's not like, you know, the Holy, that the triune God is kind of over here doing its own thing. Like the Father's over here and the Son's over here and the Spirit's over here. You see all of the Trinity really involved in all things doing this unified work of of redemption and creation and glorification and working together in complete, complete harmony. So the Spirit assists the Father and the Son in creation. We see that the Holy Spirit, and we're going to zero down in on this next week, the work of the Spirit in salvation. And this is going to have major implications just for the way we understand the gospel and grace. So look at John chapter 3, just a little, a little appetizer for what we're going to drill down into next week where Jesus speaks about the work of the Holy Spirit in his conversation with Nicodemus. Um, Let me start in verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And let me stop there and just say that Jesus is not saying that you need to be baptized in water in order to be saved. That formulation of the water and the Spirit is hearkening back to Ezekiel chapter 36 and the promise of the new covenant where God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel and he says that I will sprinkle clean water on you and I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And in the Old Testament, um, in Ezekiel, the idea of water is 
is like it's like analogous to the spirit. And so when Jesus is speaking about the water and the spirit, he's really speaking of the one work of the spirit. He's not talking about baptism. And some denominations have wrongly interpreted interpreted that verse as meaning that you have to be water baptized in order to truly be saved. And of course, we know that can't be true because the Bible has to interpret itself, and we realize that at the, on the, the thief on the cross who was not baptized he repents on the cross, and Jesus says, oh, you know what, doggone, we got to get you baptized, man. Right? No, he says, today you will be with me in paradise, right? And so that's where a good example, we have to read the Bible um, in as a whole to let the Bible interpret itself. And, and then any New Testament, any, any first century rabbi would have understood uh, that being born of the water um, is speaking about referencing back to this new covenant promise of the work of the Spirit in Ezekiel 36. Okay, that was a rabbit trail. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind, again, another analogy of the Holy Spirit, blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So right there, we see that the Holy Spirit is the agency of the Trinity in the new birth. The Holy Spirit is the one of the Trinity that is most active in bringing life to a dead heart so that it can respond in faith and repentance to the gospel. So the Spirit assists the Father in carrying out the work of creation of salvation and a whole host of other things, but those are just two major things. The Spirit works to glorify the Son. So in John chapter uh, 16, we read a little bit of it. We see that the role of the Holy Spirit is not to get people amped up and glorify himself or glorify a person, but the work of the Holy Spirit is to be like a spotlight on the Son and to illuminate and to exalt Jesus, who, when he is lifted up, um, will draw all people to himself. So we read a little bit of this earlier, but John 16, it'll be good to read again, verse 14. He, this is Jesus speaking now, of the Holy Spirit, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You And let me just stop here and say that this was one of the things that began sort of my movement away from much of the emphasis that goes on in much of the Pentecostal world is that much of the emphasis, I think, in some of those streams, and I want to say this with a lot of generosity and a lot of grace, is that the work of the Holy Spirit in those circles sometimes is presented merely for your personal spiritual benefit— And it stops there, rather than seeing that the work of the Holy Spirit in you is certainly for your personal benefit, so that you might be a better witness, so that you might illuminate Christ deeper in your life, so that you might worship Him more more passionately, so that you might see who Christ is in all of His glory, right? And and the Holy Spirit becomes kind of like a little little personal spiritual Flintstone vitamin to rev you up, and it's just become sort of like self-absorbed and it's like the Holy Spirit's just like a little juice card for your own personal satisfaction 
rather than what we see here in the scriptures. Now, I do believe God gives gifts and all that, but it's so that the Son would be lifted up in and through us, um, and He would be glorified. So the Spirit works to glorify the Son as our helper and to illuminate the Lordship of Christ. So just put up 1 Corinthians 12, 3. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit who exalts the Lordship of Christ. Then the Holy Spirit is active in the inspiration of Scripture. I want you to appreciate this, that the, the, the Bible and the Holy Spirit are not pitted against one another. The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. So in second in second Peter chapter 1 verse 21 and 20 or 20 through 21 it speaks about how the bible came about in, in this sense the, the prophets in the old testament knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from god as they were carried along by the holy spirit so the Holy Spirit is the primary agent of the triune God in really writing the Bible. We see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that the Scripture is breathed out by God. I think another reference there to the, the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the agency of the Holy Spirit bringing about the Bible. And then fourthly, the Holy Spirit empowers evangelism. And we will get into this when we start speaking about the gifts in a few weeks and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What's it for? It's not so that we would merely have deeper quiet times. So the Holy Spirit does not come merely so that we would personally experience Jesus in a deeper way. Although certainly that's a wonderful benefit. But the Holy Spirit comes so that through us we would be better and more equipped witnesses to the world. So Acts 1.8, one of the more well-known verses, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, when we get to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we're going to talk about some unique things that I think are going on in the book of Acts that God is doing in the giving out of the Spirit that I don't think necessarily form a pattern for us today. Um, and we're going to get to that. I know that's kind of a mysterious sort of clue. But, um, but I, think it's, I think that's a hotly debated topic about whether or not um, how, the bapt- how the Holy Spirit fell on believers in the New Testament. Is, it, is that a pattern that um, we should sort of pursue in our day? Specifically, is any specific gift of tongues supposed to follow the falling of the Holy Spirit on an individual believer. Now, I think the answer to that question is no, and we're going to talk about that. Um, we're going to talk about that in in uh, the coming weeks, and then in sanctification. So even now, right now, when we started this thing, the Holy Spirit is at work in believers. Right now, He's working in you. Think about this: the Holy Spirit right now is working in you conforming you into the image of Christ. He who began a good work in you, he will carry it on to completion. So the moment that you were dead in your sins and you were made alive by the Holy Spirit that came and breathed life in you, the wind blew, woke you up, made your dead heart start to beat, and then he didn't leave you, but he indwelled you, and every second of the day is literally at work in you 
making you, conforming you into the image of Christ. So Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. He says that now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So that means that a process of God's indwelling presence and work began in you the moment of your conversion, and He is ticking you along at times very slowly, yeah, amen. Thank you, sister, for your honesty, whoever that was. I'm with you. At times, painfully slowly, but he has guaranteed that he will continue that process until that day when sanctification is no longer necessary and you are before the Lord and you are glorified and all sin is finally vanquished. Friend, if there's nothing else that you get out of tonight... I want you to revel and be heartened by the indwelling guarantee of the Spirit's work in your life if you are a Christian. David puts it this way in Psalm 139, where can I go from your Spirit? I can't go to the other side of the sea. I can't go into the depths of Sheol. I can't, I can't get away from you, God, because you are the hound of heaven. So right now, right now, like you are, you are racked with sin. And you wonder if God is with you. Oh, dear friend, he, it, this is the great truth of the Holy Spirit's work in you. He is with you. And part of his work may be to make you feel so miserable and make his presence feel so distant from you that you yearn and long for a, a, a deeper fellowship with him. But that is him at work in you. The Holy Spirit is at work in his people and he never stops working. That's incredibly encouraging. And sometimes in the Christian life, we can do nothing but just fall down and fall back into the arms of that great truth. Amen? Right? Right? Because, I mean, isn't, isn't the Christian life humbling? I mean, you think you got it together. You uh, came across some good piece of doctrine. You're just cr- clipping along, acting like you got it together. And then just something happens and you just realize, oh my gosh, I am a complete knucklehead. And it's in those moments when we need to remember that he is ticking us along from one degree of glory to another. And what a beautiful truth that is for the Christian life. Okay, that's just, we just put our toes in the water. We're going to get much deeper in the coming weeks. We're going to talk about speaking in tongues, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, prophecy. What are all those things um, in the coming weeks? But we're just, we're just getting, getting, getting wet right now. All right, any questions before we wrap it up? Any questions? Mark. The Holy Spirit is, Josh is bringing the mic. Josh the, Josh the intern is bringing the mic. I didn't want anybody to hear this. What's that? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want anybody yeah. else to hear it. Is uh, the Holy Spirit uh, omnipotent? 
Yes. And all-knowing. Yes. So all the attributes, all the attributes, that's a great question, Mark. All the attributes of the Godhead apply to all the persons of the Trinity. Now, we need to do a little bit of talk, like during Jesus' incarnation on earth. um, You know, I'd want to have some caveats there because he was in space and time as, as the Son of God in the flesh. And... Philippians 2 has this wonderful passage how he emptied himself, um, and, he, and so we, we get into that. But yes, the Holy Spirit is omniscient, omnipresent. You know, Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I go? He knows all things. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 or 2 speaks about how the Spirit searches the deep things of the heart and of God and makes them known to us. So yes, the Holy Spirit knows all things. Excellent question. Yeah. Colonel Wood. Since this is almost maybe our last time here. Oh. Got to get one in. Um, I was listening. Wait to a minute! No, you can't throw that. You can't like do that to us, right? You, is, is that for certain? Yeah. We'll, oh we'll, man. We'll talk about that later. Okay. But um, in my last road trip to Florida, I was listening to a tape on the aseity of God. Mm. Um, and, and one of my favorite words, by the way. Yeah. Um, Let's write that up on the screen. Just okey so. doke. Yeah. But the 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 comment was that. That God is relational because of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, you know, when it's John says God is love, that's why, because he's a relational being yes. from the start. Yes. Yes. That's like, it's not a question. I would just like. That's so good. That I'm glad you brought that up because I want us to think just a moment about. Yeah. So Greg um, gave us a 50 cent word here. The aseity of God which is the doctrine of the self-sufficiency of God. So unlike many modern um, Christian ballad songs that play on the radio, God does not need us, right? <laughs> right? Um, God is sufficient in and of himself. And God has had an eternally, pre-eternal community within the trinity is what greg is getting at so beautifully and so before god was creator he was father son and holy spirit and so there's this perfect fellowship and sufficiency and glory of the trinity that not because he needed us, but merely as an outflow of his glory, he creates all that is and invites his people into the fellowship of the Trinity. That's a wonderful meditation. That's a wonderful meditation. Yeah. And in a man-centered world, I think it's very instructive for us. So God's not up there with a four-leaf clover saying, oh, will he love me or will he not love me? God does not need us. That's a great point. But God decides to love us despite that. Intern Josh, do you have somebody over there that's got a question? Okay. Oh, Andrew. Okay, gotcha. Hey, so one Dr. of one of the things that we talk about a lot is the necessity of each uh, member of the Trinity yes. being God. Yeah. Um, can we talk about the implication of like why they why it's so important that they're just one God, as opposed to saying, okay, yeah, all three of these are God, but they're all you know separate deities. Can you talk about the implications um, if you let that piece of the Trinity go? Uh, That's a really good question, um, Dr. Hearn. I would say um, well, I would say that that because because 
the, my first, my mind goes to Ephesians 4, because God, God is one, and he's revealed himself as one, and so there's one faith, there's one Lord, there's one spirit, there's one baptism, and so God is one, so to not understand him as one is to wrongly understand God, and so, you, you know, it falls apart, um, so I would say that the necessity is, is because that's who God is, that's who he's revealed himself to be, that's who he is, and therefore to not understand him in that way is to wrongly understand him. That's my, kind of my best, that's my best guess. I would kind of start with scripture, it's God's self-revelation, self-revelation and say that's, that's, so when the Bible clearly teaches that, to understand it in any other way is to disobey and wrongly understand God. I don't know if that answers your question, Doc, but it's the best I got. Intern Josh, do you got any questions over there? No? Just standing there looking good? All right, good. All right. Brian McMean's got a question. Josh is an intern, by the way, at Crosspoint Church. I don't know if any of you knew that or not. His last name's Intern, yeah. <laughs> and his middle name is The. No, Hutchinson is his name, actually. Yes, Brian. If you receive the question, like, Jesus would often refer to the Father being greater than I. So yeah. you think, think to Jesus' references to his position mm-hmm. to the Father. Mm-hmm. And then you also have the, the, mm. the statement that, you know, he, he was filled with the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Which you know sometimes yeah. that sometimes that can be interpreted as yes. like there was a time when he wasn't filled with the spirit, which might likely be considered a wrong interpretation of that. Yes. But how would you connect his reference, his deference to God, yes, and like reference to like a clear demarcation of he was filled with the spirit? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a great question, and actually, there's a debate raging in kind of our little stream theologically right now about some of those very things. One of the errors in the history of the church about the Trinity was um, something called subordinationism. And they, people wrongly felt that the Son was subordinate, and the Spirit, by the way, were subordinate to the Father in uh, their essence and glory. And the Bible doesn't teach that. But the Bible does teach that although the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal and co-glorious in their essence, that their roles are different. And so you do see the Son functionally subordinating himself to the Father. And that word functionally is very important. So his essence is not less than the Father. His personhood, his glory, his godness is not less than the Father. But his role is different. Likewise with the Spirit and the Spirit's role. So you have, this, you, have this, you have this community within the Trinity, all God, God in one, but with distinct persons and distinct roles, and the Son and the Spirit functionally subordinating themselves to the Father, which then becomes the picture of human relationships. And it becomes the picture of marriage. And I was talking to a young couple that's doing premarital counsel right now. I was sitting with Will and McKenzie in my office today talking about 
a wife's submission to her father. I mean, yeah, to, to, her, to her husband. A wife's submission to her husband. And the world wrongly understands submission and reacts negatively to it by thinking that when the Bible says submit, that it means that it's detracting from the essence of the person. And that saying that men are more important than women, or men are, that, and that's wrong. But that's not what the Bible is saying. It's saying that a wife is, is a co-image bearer, no less glorious in her image bearing than her husband, but functionally her role is different, and it is one of functional subordination to her husband's Christ-like leadership. And, and Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, actually makes the analogy that just as the father is the head of Christ, the husband is the head of the wife. And so the, the, the community of the Trinity, the functional subordination, but the equal glory of the persons of the Trinity becomes the model for the most basic human relationship between a husband and a wife. And isn't it telling that our world hates a Christian biblical view of marriage because it's an echo of the triune God? So that would be my answer, is that yes, the Son functionally subordinates His role to the Father and the Spirit to the Father, and then the Spirit has a role in filling the Son during His incarnation, but none of that should cause us to understand any less glory within the Trinity. Likewise, we see that should be, that should be echoed in marriage, right? So isn't that beautiful? So I mean, come on, I mean, marriage, oh, oh God, I could go all day on that. All right, but I won't. That's for our next counseling session there, Will and McKenzie. Any questions, other ones at all? All right. Well, let's pray and um, wrap it up. You guys have been a good audience tonight. We will do, um, we're going to drill down into the Holy Spirit's role in salvation next week. Now, I know some of you are just chomping at the bit to get into tongues and prophecy and all that kind of stuff. We're going to get there. But um, there's other stuff that we want to learn about the Holy Spirit as well that is very important, and so we're going to go slow. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for these friends. Um, Lord, help us tonight um, as we go. Lord, we want to know you more. We want all of you. um, We want to fill ourselves up with the knowledge of the glory of God. Uh, we, we are so thankful that by your Holy Spirit, you awakened our dead hearts to the knowledge of your Son. That you, we thank you for the salvation that was planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and applied by the Holy Spirit. And now that Holy Spirit lives in us, quickens us to life, sanctifies us daily, illuminates Jesus, gifts us for service and witness, and draws us deeper into the joy of being in fellowship with our triune God. What a privilege. So, Lord, let us, let us be more aware of that in this coming week as we serve you. Bless these friends, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.